Happy Fourth of July weekend. It's good to see all of you here tonight. Thanks for uh, making your plans to stay here before you left town. It's great to see you. Okay, tonight we're going to finish off the passionate life. And you know we've been doing this for three weeks. Tonight's our fourth week. The reason I've been doing this series is because I find in my experience in dealing with people that lots and lots of people, particularly many Christians, many people who say they know God, are just sort of going through the motions of life. They're bored. Life seems mundane. There's no spark in their life. There's no overarching, passionate reason that they live. And it's kind of like they're just kind of waiting around for some kind of lightning strike and it doesn't come. And, and I find that many people just kind of give up on the Christian life. The Bible actually says that God has a much different life plan for you and I. Jesus said, I came that you might have life, that you might have it to the fullest, that you might have it in abundance. Now, when Jesus said that, he wasn't speaking in the way that we would tend to think that. Almost all the reality shows that you have on television, not all of them, but almost all of them, are people's futile and vain attempt to win the good life. Most people, they think that a passionate life would be the rich life. It'd be a life full of riches, full of money, full of pleasure, full of all the things that they'd really like, really like to be able to possess, and just have all the time in the world to do it. You know what that is? That's really the boring life. That's really a life that is not connected to something higher. It's not connected to something of significance, of lasting significance. It's just a life in pursuit of hedonism. Now, some people think that's harsh, but that's the frank truth. That's the reality of it. And people get all excited and, you know, maybe it's the amazing race. And these people do all these, or it's the fear factor. And they do all these crazy things at a chance to win a little money. But for what? For what? What overarching purpose are they going to use that money for? Well, for most people, it's themselves. And their life has no greater passion than themselves. And then they find out, after they get their little pot of gold, a couple years go by, maybe maybe three, four, five, six, and they're not any happier. Their marriage isn't any better. There's no more energy in their life. I was with a friend this weekend in... And uh, he used to be the drummer in the band that I had. And I remember he was just a young baby Christian. And um, he has since moved to Salt Lake City and started a couple rock churches there. And God has been using him in some very significant ways. And he was talking about passion in his session. And he told the story of Steve Jobs. Now, many of you don't know who Steve Jobs is. Some of you do. But he is the uh, one of the primary inventors of the PC and getting uh, and of Apple computers, the founder of Apple computers. But before <clears throat> there was Apple, Steve Jobs had a dream. And his dream was to put a PC on every desk of every person in the world. Now, as my friend puts it, when he had this dream, the average size of the computer was bigger than the stage. And the printer, as he puts it, filled the other room. 
And at Iowa State University, where my friend was going at the time, there was only one computer. One. There was no computers on anybody's desk. It was just one. It was called a VAX computer. <clears throat> Steve Jobs had this dream of putting this PC, this, this box, on the desk of every person. So I went to see a man named Steve Scully, and I, if I remembered at the time, Stephen Scully was the CEO of Coca-Cola. And Steve Jobs went into his office, got a few minutes with Mr. Scully, and, and he told him his dream. And Stephen Scully looked at him when he was all done and said, Well, Steve, I can tell you're excited about this, but um, no thank you. He was coming to Stephen Scully to help him with marketing, to help him figure out how to sell the world on this possibility. A few seconds of silence went by and Stephen Jobs leaned forward in his chair and he pounded on Stephen Scully's desk and he said, listen to me, Mr. Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water to the world or do you want to change the world? The rest is history. Scully resigned from Coke and he and Mr. Jobs went and brought their version of change to the world. Now, did they change the world? Well... I guess that's debatable. I guess that's what you, what you mean by change. Did they bring a new form of information sharing? Yes. Has technology helped? For the good, in many respects, yes. And in other respects, it has become the greatest purveyor of filth in the world. So I guess it's all how you look at it and all how you use it. But Stephen Jobs is a picture of passion. He was this little nerdy sort of a guy that had a dream, and, and his dream was probably twofold, if we could be honest. One was, I want to change the world. I want to bring the possibilities of the computer and shrink it down and put it on the desk of every person. But at the same time, I'm sure Mr. Jobs was seeing dollar signs in his eyes. But you know... What's interesting about a man like Stephen Jobs is it's not really just money that drives them. It's the possibility to do something unique. And in a very worldly sense, Stephen Jobs and Bill Gates have tapped into something that the majority of Christians is missing. And that's a passionate reason to get out of bed every single day. And know that I'm changing the world. That I'm changing people's experience in life. God has something so much bigger and so much greater and eternal for your life. But do you understand that? Do you get that or have you missed it? Paul was a man whose life was invaded by God. And when his God moment came, and when God came to Paul and revealed himself to Paul, as God has to you, he has revealed himself to you. Paul listened. Paul treasured that moment in his life. And Paul set out on a mission to change the world. Really change the world. Really change the world. You see, the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the single most powerful force 
in the world. It is Christianity that turns the murderer into a lover. It is Christianity that turns the thief into a philanthropist. It is Christianity that turns the abuser into a sacrificial person laying down their life for another. It is Christianity that changes societies because it changes the human heart. Christ changes the heart. And Paul came to that understanding. And Paul was never the same. And do you know what? The world was never the same. Listen, one day, I know this is hard to believe, just like it was hard for me to believe that one day there'd be no more eight tracks. Just like it was, and I mean, you know, it just never even entered into my mind. That one day, you could have a little box, and that little box could hold four, five, six, ten thousand songs instead of a back seat full of eight tracks. And that little box could fit in your belt or fit in your pocket and you can plug it into a giant sound system instead of carrying around stacks and stacks of CDs. You can use an MP3 or an iPod or the little shuffle or whatever it is you use. Anyway, we never dreamed that. <clears throat> Paul could not have known at the time, but he had some understanding that the message that God gave him, the revelation that he received, would literally be passed down for the last 2,000 years and it's changed the world. Wherever People have asked this question. It's an interesting question. People have asked, what is it that has made America what America is? The land of extraordinary opportunity. The land where the majority of people, the vast majority... Did you know that in most of the world there is no middle class? There's poverty and a few very rich people. That's the way it's been since the dawn of time. You know what the difference is in this nation was the spread of the Judeo-Christian message. Was the spread of Jesus Christ. This nation... The first five to ten universities of this nation, Harvard being one, Yale being another, were founded for the exclusive purpose of the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, you not even recognize that Christ was even welcome on the campus. Sure, America's changed, but America was founded in a unique way. Wherever Christianity has gone in the world, wherever it has gone in the world, Wonderfully good things have followed and happened to the human beings that happen to live in that country. Every single time. Every And I'm talking now, let me back up, I'm talking about biblical Christianity. Not a pseudonym. I won't name what I'm thinking of. I'm talking about biblical Christianity where the gospel is preached where Christ's love is shared and Christ's love is shown and the New Testament is taught in its purity. Wherever that has happened, societies have been transformed. Alexis de Tocqueville commented, he was a famous historian, commented that the primary difference between 
Our revolution and the French Revolution, which if you've ever studied it, was bloody and messy and vile, was Christianity. When he came to the United States and he observed the United States, he said the United States is different because because her people are good, because they are a highly religious people, because they are a Christian people. The majority of the founding fathers of this nation were born-again Christians who were laying down their lives and their sacred honor and they threw in their lot together to begin a nation where the free exercise of religion could be experienced by every person without the threat of the government intervening and forcing you into a state church. It all started with a man named Paul. It all started with a man who is captivated. And we saw in the first week that Paul was captivated and passionate because he knew God had called him. And God has called you and me. We discovered the next week that Paul was passionate because he discovered the love of God. That God personally loved him. He was an awful man. Paul was a despicable human being before he came to Christ. You don't get more despicable than murdering and hurting the children of God. And that's what Paul had been doing. He was persecuting the Christians. In God's opinion, it was as great a crime as those who crucified his son. Jesus was the head. The Romans and the Jewish people crucified the head of the church. Paul persecuted and killed the body of Christ, the church. And God reached down and he saved Paul. He loved Paul. And Paul goes back to this over and over and over and over. I want you to think about your life for just a moment. I know many of you in this room. I know a little bit of your story. And if I can be so bold as to say, you were a despicable human being before you came to Christ. You were not a nice person. You were self-centered. You were immoral. Many of you were abusive, especially when you got drunk. You broke the law. You stole things. And even if you didn't do those things, your mind was full of evil things and evil thoughts, just like mine. We didn't care about God. We didn't care about His Son, Jesus Christ. We cared about ourselves. And we came to a point, we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, we heard about the love of Christ, and He intervened in our life, and we experienced His love in our life. It changed us. It changed us. The question is, have you planted your roots in the love of God? Are you going deeper in the love of God? Do you really get it? Do you really get it? Has the light bulbs come on? Do you understand how much God loves you? This is Paul's great prayer. I I pray that your roots will go down deep in the soil of God's marvelous love, that you might understand how high and wide and deep and broad His love for you really is, so to be full up with the fullness of God. First John says, 
the old manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Now, now some of you may think, geez, Mark, that isn't radical. We're all children of God. No, we're not. No more than we're all children of Sam Walton who died and heirs to the biggest fortune in the United States, the Walmart fortune. I'm not a child of Sam Walton. I'm not an heir to that fortune. The vast majority of the world is not children of God. They are God's creation, but they are not God's child. But God's unending plan in Ephesians was to adopt us into His own family. Have you been adopted? If you have, you are heirs to the greatest fortune in the universe. And you are personally loved and cared for by God. But until someone embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ and the germinating seed of God at that moment enters their heart and they are reborn, they're dead. They're dead. They are spiritually dead. They have no life. They only exist. When we understand Christ loved me and when He died on that cross, He was dying for me. Forget the rest of the world for a moment. He was dying for you. His blood was shed for you. For all of your wrongdoings. From the time you were born to the time you die. Everything in between. He died for all of that. And you and I no longer have an account with God. We don't owe God a debt at all. Christ paid that debt. There's no guilt anymore. There's no condemnation anymore. Man, you better believe Paul's conscience was clear. Once he discovered Christ, this was a man who understood he had murdered, he had killed, he had attacked the very son who had paid for his sin. And when he came to Christ and was awakened to this new life, he never forgot it. And Paul's passion changed the course of history. We talked last week about the fact that Paul's great burdens, Paul's great passion was the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth. Paul was longing to get the truth to people. Our entire world our entire world is being lied to at almost every level. Lie upon lie upon lie upon lie. And people's lives are being ruined by lies. Paul was passionate about the truth. Many, many years ago, long, long time ago, there was this, this plague that was spreading across England. It was especially ravaging mothers and their new babies. The infant mortality rate, I mean, was... I think sky high is the way I want to say that. Lots of babies were dying. In those days, now this may sound really strange to you. I don't want to gross you out, but I want to make a point. Doctors would go from woman to woman examining them and giving birth to the children and two things they never did. This is hard for you to believe. It's the truth. They never washed their hands and they never wore gloves. They didn't understand germs. There was one Christian doctor. One Christian doctor. One. 
particular Christian doctor, wasn't the only Christian doctor, this one particular Christian doctor was reading his Bible. He was reading the Old Testament. And it talked about the fact that when you touch the dead body, you should go wash your hands in a running stream and dry them on a rock. So he took the principle, and this doctor, you know, what, what did he have to lose? All the women and these babies were getting infections and dying anyway. So he decided to uh, have this, this pump installed, and he had someone pump it, and he would put his hands and he'd rub them really fast together after he examined the woman who delivered the baby. And then he would kind of shake them dry or let them kind of dry, and then he would go to the next person. And on his floor, babies stopped dying. Mothers stopped their infections. Well, he was just overwhelmed and he wanted to spread his good news to other doctors. They laughed at him. Until finally, it was undeniable that his practice, because he discovered the truth, was saving lives. This book saves lives. It saves lives. Not only for eternity, but here and now. I told the illustration last week of AIDS sweeping the continent of Africa. Millions upon millions upon millions are going to die in the next decade. One reason, there are many reasons. One reason is because of the lies that the local witch doctors tell the men who contract AIDS, who have slept with multitudes of partners. And they tell them if you go find a 12-year-old virgin and sleep with her, your AIDS will leave. And so rape is ravaging the country as these men who bought into a lie are raping 12-year-old girls who now have AIDS. Paganism is pervasive throughout the entire world. Paganism is another world for idolatry, is another world for worshiping anything but the true and living God. And it's killing people. It's killing people. Paul was burdened to get the truth to people. And secondly, I talked to you last week, Paul was simply burdened. He was bothered by the human need. He was bothered by what he saw. He was burdened for Christians to experience the truth of God. He was burdened that they would come to know Christ in a deeper way. And Paul gave his life for the church. Not just gave his life for non-Christians, but he was burdened that you would grow. Did you know that your growth burdens me? It's a passion of mine that you would grow, that you'd get in the Bible, that you would understand it, that it could be opened up to you, that you could grow in your relationship with God, that you could grow in the truth. It's my life's work. I was doing this long before I was able to get paid for it and do it full time. I was doing it in every moment of my free time. In sororities, in fraternities, in college dorms room, in youth centers, <clears throat> in living rooms. Anyone would listen, talk about the Lord. Paul was burdened by the world. The world around him that did not have Jesus Christ. Paul suffered physical beatings. He suffered accusations. He suffered suspicion. He suffered people lying about him, destroying his reputation. He was thrown in jail, all because of his one great passion, to bring Christ and truth to other people. 
I cannot say that I've suffered to the degree that Paul has, but I've suffered. I cannot say that I've been in jail, but I have been accused of an awful lot of things that when they got when I got wind of them, they were devastating. And they brought great grief to my heart. And they made me want they made me think twice about what I was doing. And then as I began to ponder, Lord, what else would I do? You have the words of eternal life. When Paul writes in Acts, I did not shrink from declaring to you the full counsel of God. The reason he says that is because, let me tell you, there's a lot of things in the Bible that aren't very popular. And when I say them, they don't make me very popular. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough. I'm passionate enough because I know the truth can change your life. The truth can set you free to experience what God has. There's one last great passion that Paul had. It was one that was the overarching passion over Paul's entire life. And before I read it to you, I want to ask you a question. What do you get passionate about? What do you get passionate about? You know, there's, there's people that are passionate about you too. They worship at the feet of you too. Let's just be honest. There's some people that do. They follow them to as many concert dates as they can. They pay however much they need to pay to get in. And even some would pay $1,000 if they had to if there were no other concert tickets available. They'd skip their job. Some would lie and say they're going this place or they call in sick just so they could drive thousands of miles or hundreds of miles to see the band play. There's some people who worship music. They just, any new thing that comes out, they've got to have it. They spend their money on it and their time is spent. They're passionate about music. There, there are other people who are passionate about their yard. Man, that grass, that green grass is so awesome in it. just trips my trigger. It just turns me on. Got to get me some more rocks in my yard, flowers in my yard, and just the right matching bark in my yard. Now there's other people passionate about their dogs, man. They got a dog masseuse. They got their special little dog. Their dog eats better than the majority of the people in China and India combined. They love that dog. Or cat, whatever the case may be. Now there are people who are passionate about their car. Passionate about motorcycles. Now, I want to make something clear. I'm not saying in any way that it's wrong to have interests, to have hobbies, to enjoy certain aspects of life. What I'm talking about is passion. What do I mean? I know guys in the summer who play four nights a week softball. They can't wait. They can't. They, they count the moments as the clock the hand goes around the face of the clock till they get off work. They can jump in the car, get home, get the glove, get on the cleats, and head to the field. That's passion. I'm talking about the people who can't wait, get in the car, put on the new system, or drive the car. They think about it. That is your, that's your passion. Paul had one overarching passion in his life. Let me read it to you in Philippians. 
I once thought all these things in life were so important, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done for me. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so I may have Christ and become one with Him. That's pretty profound. Actually, that's pretty fanatical, don't you think? I consider everything in life worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Stephen Jobs is like that, only for computers. <clears throat> when he went to Stephen Scully, he had bet everything on this computer. Everything. Everything in his whole life. And nothing else mattered. He spent countless hours developing that computer, working on it, needed to find a way to market it, and he went to try to get the best people to help him. He bet the farm. Bill Gates gets up every day. He thinks, eats, sleeps, and drinks Microsoft. And Microsoft dominates the world. Along came Larry Ellison with Oracle. And he's nipping at his heels. Nipping at his heels. He considers it war. And it gets him out of bed every single day. Do you remember the saying when Jesus said he was sitting in a well? He'd been talking to a Samaritan woman. And the disciples came back. They said, Lord, eat something. And he said, I have food that you know nothing about. And they kind of look at each other like, did somebody bring Jesus lunch? And did, he, did he call out? Maybe use the cell phone and call Jerusalem bagels or something. I don't know. You know what that means? Let me tell you a secret. Some people ask me, Mark, but I don't, you know, you're going to be an older guy, but how do you keep this energy level? Because I have fuel that you don't understand. I eat, sleep, drink, and breathe Christianity. The more times I could share it, the better off I'd be. If I could do it seven nights a week, I would do it seven nights a week. If I could travel all the way to China and know there'd be 300 people there waiting to listen for a week, I would go. I would go. It's fuel. There is no substitute in the world for passion. For passion. For being captivated by God. Well, Paul was captivated in his desire to know Christ. Now, I remember when this happened to me. I remember it as, just as clear as, as, as right now, as this moment. And God got a hold of my life. And I determined, as Paul wrote in Corinthians... For I have determined to know nothing among you but Christ and crucified. I want to know Christ. I remember when that happened to me. And I put everything else aside in my life. And I'm not exaggerating. I was reading in the book of Jeremiah that first week when God, I had my Damascus Road experience, and I came to this verse, and it says, For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? And God was asking this question. And I remember <clears throat> it was like God sitting right next to me. See, I prepared my heart. Before I opened my Bible, I prayed. And it was a sincere, desperate prayer. It was, God, reveal yourself to me. God, I want to know you. God, speak to me from this book. So I opened up my Bible. My heart was soft. My heart was ready. And I read that verse. And I'm not exaggerating. Tears welled up in my eyes 
And it was as if the Lord was there and had made this proposal. And he said, for who is he will devote himself to be close to me? And I looked at the Lord and I said, Lord, I will. I will. I am going to devote my life to being close to you. Wherever you are, I want to be. I want to know you. I want intimacy with you. I want to experience you. Now, I have to understand a couple things in my life. Up to that point, I had two consuming passions. I don't really like to admit this to you, but in, in order to be honest, I, those two consuming passions were women, which simply symbolized sex. And the second was music. I loved it. I wanted to go on the road and do it. I wanted to do my life. I had a very expensive guitar. I was learning to play. I had plans. I had dreams. And the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I killed them both. Now I'm going to explain why in a minute. I've come back to music. Music is a very big part of my life. And, and it's a very important part of my life. But at that time in my life, what you had to understand was women and music, they were idols. They were Mark's idols. And I had to tear them down and smash them to bits. Because I was going to give my heart to Jesus. I was going to give my love to Him. That night, the next day, excuse me, that I had given my life to Christ, that I had that, that Damascus Road experience, I went to the gal that I've been going out with. And I told her, her name was Sue. I said, Sue, I need to talk to you about something very important. And I think she thought I was going to propose because, you know, we talked about that kind of stuff. I said, Sue, the first thing I need to do is apologize to you for using you. I should have never been immoral with you. I know that. I should have never been sleeping with you. I know that. I used you. And I was wrong. And I want to say that I'm sorry. She kind of looked at me. Her eyes got kind of big because, you know, it was kind of a mutual thing. We're each using each other. And then I said, Sue, the second thing is I want you to know that, and this has nothing to do with you. I think you're a wonderful lady. I think you're a very attractive woman. I do not want you to take this personal. This is really all about me. I gave my life to Christ last night, and our relationship ends tonight. Our relationship isn't about God. My life has not been about God. My life is now under new ownership. I've been captivated by someone new. You'll never see me again. I will never be down here again. And I would urge you, Sue, to give your life to Jesus Christ. And I shared the gospel with her. She cussed and swore at me about that, that part, not the other part. I don't want nothing to do with God. I tried that, I don't want anything to do with it. And I was walking out, and right by the door, she had a bookshelf of old Christian material, and I could see that, and I said, well... Do you mind if I take these on your hands? Like, get rid of it. Please, take it with you. I read three of those booklets that night, and they were the primary primary booklets at that time in my life that directed my life towards a passionate life of Jesus Christ. The second thing, uh, to be really honest, was the only way I knew how to sing and play in front of people. See, to get in front of people, do you know the Americans' number one fear? It's public speaking not dying 
It's public speaking. Or getting in front of people. So most musicians, they have a secret. It's one of two things. Drugs and alcohol gives them false courage or a ton of arrogance. Mine was arrogance. My secret was, I'd tell myself how lucky you all were to get to hear me. I mean, I am so good. I am so good. And I surrounded myself with people who told me how good I was. Now I become a Christian. I understand the destructive power of pride. I understood it in 24 hours. You know why? I wasn't smart. It's because God moved into my life. And the Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you. And you know it. You know it. You know immorality and pride are ruining your life. You're compromising. I was sick of compromising. Compromising was ruining my life and I knew it. So I put my guitar in its case and I sold it for much less than I paid for it. And I told the Lord, Lord, I will not sing again and I won't take up the guitar again till I understand humility, until I understand how to sing for your glory and for the blessing of others, until I know how to sing because my confidence comes from you. And I kept my promise. And I went after God. And that was 30 years ago. And that hasn't stopped. The Bible says in Hosea, So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, and He will come to us like the spring rain watering the earth. I talk to Christians. Listen, let me tell you a secret. I talk to Christians. I have Christians call me all the time. And, 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 I, and I can see it visibly in them. They're dry. They're experiencing burnout. You know Why? Nine times out of ten. I'd like to say it's every time. It's almost nine times out of ten. I'll start to talk to the person. And guess what? Their spiritual habits are gone. They haven't been seeking the Lord. They haven't been praying to God. They haven't been desperate for God. They haven't been in their Bible. They've neglected it for months. And they wonder, I'm dry. The Christian life isn't exciting. What is the promise? So let us know. Let us press on. Press forward to know the Lord and then He will come to us like the spring rain watering the earth. He does not just come. He comes because you're pressing to know Him. You remember when Jesus said, I will not cast my pearl before swine. And I, I remember I used to read that as a Christian and think, Lord, are you just calling us pigs? Or what, what are you saying? And often the scriptures sometimes it'll take you, it kind of jars you. You read it and it's like, I don't, what does that mean? So I prayed about it and I, and I pondered it, I prayed about it, I pondered it. And one day, God revealed this to me. I'm not saying this is the only meeting, but this certainly was meaningful to me. He said, Mark, why would I give my, well, let me back up. Pigs don't care about jewels. They care more about watermelon rinds than jewels. So why would you throw your diamonds to animals that could care less about them. Right? That makes sense to you, right? Nod your head. Okay, now let's talk about you and me. Why would God let you know Him if you don't even care about Him? Why would God reveal His secrets to you, let you enjoy intimacy with Him, if He's not really all that important to you? He won't. That's the whole point. He won't. He won't. 
He is true to himself. He is true to his word. And he will not reveal himself to you. And for many here tonight, that's why your life is dry. Because you're living a compromised life. You haven't sold out. You haven't given it all up. You haven't said to God, here's my entire life. Here's it all. I just put it out. I want you. And then you develop those habits, you see. Let's talk about that. How do we know the Lord? How do we press on and know the Lord? What did Paul mean when he said he discarded all of the things? It meant he put anything aside that was a distraction to him. My kids used to ask me. They don't anymore, but... I said, you know, Dad, we're, our family, we're kind of different. We, we notice that we, we go over to other people's houses. We're kind of different. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, our house isn't super fancy. We have rabbit ears on our TV. We don't have satellite dish. We don't have cable. And they would say some other things. I won't get into that. And I said, well, do you want to know why? There are two reasons why. One is because I have a cause greater to live for than spending my money and my time collecting things. But you want to know the other reason? It's because everything you own can potentially become a massive distraction to your life. And I can't afford to be distracted from my main passion. Because what, you know what? I like TV. (laughs) I like World War II shows. I like VH1. I like Behind the Music. I like CMT. I like... I like it! Jiminy, I enjoy... I could sit... I'm a channel surfer. When I go to motels, travel sometimes, and, uh, what am I missing? Oh, there's boxing. Oh, oh, look at that song. Jeez, that's good. Oh, my gosh, they're interviewing so-and-so. And I'm, oh, five, you know, 300 channels. Bing, 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 bing. I can never settle because I think if I settle on that one, I'm missing five over here. So I'm, oh, oh, I like that movie. Then I might settle for a while. You know what it would be like if I had a satellite dish in my home? The pull, you see, it would pull me. It would pull me. And my, my affection would start to get divided. And it would start to sap my strength. You know, I don't have a cabin. A log cabin. I love, I love rough timber. I, I, love, I love rough cut stones. At my age, where most guys would be with some of my passions, would be somewhere either in Colorado, I'd be living Idaho or Montana, and I would have a rough-hewn log cabin that I helped build with a rock, rough boulder fireplace. And there I would live. Do you know why I don't have one? Because I can't afford any strength or energy of mine being distracted from my passion, which is God. To know Him. To know Him. Be close to Him. To live like He lived to the best of my ability. I like Mini Coopers. It's the only car in 30 years that actually made me feel funny. <laughs> kind of like, you know, guys, when you meet that right girl. It just, it, it just I, I look at it and I, get, I, I feel funny. You think I'm going to buy one? you got to be kidding. I'd be out there sitting in it. Driving, figuring out ways to take trips just to drive in it. I like those new Harley Davidsons. I never ridden motorcycles. 
Mostly because I'm afraid of those stupid people in the world. Not me, but them. Not that I can't be stupid. I can't. That, that new one with that, that unique gas tank on it, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's incredible looking. But then I'd have to find time to write it. It wouldn't be here. I'd probably write it back and forth to the Black Hills. There's a lot of things in there that we could fill our life with. If I did, it would keep me from my lover. It would keep me from the one I love the most. And I refuse to do that. Let me close tonight by just giving you a few practical ways that you get to know the Lord. You get to know the Lord, number one, by making time in your life, in your day, to go out and talk to God. This has been a habit of mine for 30 years. I have different places around my area where I live. Used to be Fort Snelling for years and years. Then I moved a little farther south to Egan. So so I'll tell you my place because most of you don't live near there anyway. But if you want to share it, you're more than welcome to. And if I see you, I'll walk away so you don't see me anymore so I can be alone with my lover. I go out by the Diamond T Ranch in Egan. And there's this, right across from the ranch is one gravel road. Only gravel road I know of in the city of Egan. And it goes down this woods. And there's these woods on each side. And I just walk back and forth and I spent time talking to God I talked to God about you I bring before God many of your needs your requests the ones that I know of but when I don't know of them I pray for your soul I pray for your life I pray for your spiritual growth I pray for my family I pray for my own life I ask God to show me himself I thank my father that he made the very trees that I'm walking by and the very lake that I'm looking at I get to know Him. There's no way to get to know God without time. Without time spent with God, it's impossible to get to know Him. I get to know Him through His Word. I've read this book more times than I can count. I think about it. It's my primary source of inspiration. It's my primary source of, of reading. Let me put it a different way. It's my primary source of meditation. I think about it a lot. I now am more uh, back to my music and I pull out my guitar and I write songs about it. And most of the songs that I write are scripture either literally or reworded just a little bit. And I sing them over and over. And in the singing and in the worshiping, God reveals himself to me more. Let me share something else with you. There's a lot of people who think the way to get to know God is to live a monastic life. And I want to tell you, That's erroneous. You will not grow closer to God by permanently taking your life away from people, away from the troubles and the suffering and the trial of life and just living a simple life in a stone building with a few other people and not engaging life. You get to know God in the arena. You come close to Christ in the arena. You grow closer to God as you learn to deny the flesh, as you learn to say no to sin. You go closer to Christ when you live where He lived. And where did Jesus live? Among the poor and the hurting and the needy. And I'm not just speaking physically. For if we put on the glasses of God, we begin to realize that that person living in the nice house on Lake Harriet or Lake Nokomis or Calhoun is as needy and poor and broken as the homeless man or woman standing 
under Lindale Avenue. They are equally broken in the eyes of God if they do not know Christ. And so many Christians are not coming to know Christ because they're not active in sharing their faith. The Bible says in Philemon, a good understanding have all of those who are active in sharing their faith. When we live like Jesus lived, we grow closer to God. When we live by the priorities that Jesus lived by, we grow closer to God. When we make the choices that Mary made, you remember the story of Mary and Martha? God came to visit their house one day. His name was Jesus. And oh, Mary, Mary was just overwhelmed and she sat at Jesus' feet. She wanted to hear what he had to say and just be with him. But Martha, she went to serve him. That's a noble thing. It was just an inappropriate time to do it. And she was busy, 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 busy. Finally, she came to Jesus and said, Jesus, look, I'm preparing this incredible meal for you because you're here and you're God and Mary's not even helping me. Please tell her to get off her seat and help me. And Jesus said, oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. You're worried and bothered about so many things. Mary has chosen the better part, and I will not take it from her. Mary adored. Mary took time to be with Jesus. Paul was close to... Look at. let me just close with this thought. Paul writes, I no longer count on my own goodness, my ability... But I count on Christ to save me. As a result, I can really know and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I can learn what it means to suffer with him sharing in his death and somehow experience resurrection from the dead. If you're not sharing in his suffering, you'll never come to know him. If you're not choosing the Calvary road in your life, if you're not choosing the life of discipleship, if you're not choosing a life that rejects this world's system and this world's values and embraces God. If you're not walking amongst the needy to serve and to help, then you will never fully comprehend God. Yes, we need time alone with God. Yes, we need to learn to meditate on God. Yes, we need to learn to explore His Word and He reveals Himself to us. But we must do what He asks us to do and walk where He asks us to walk and live how He asks us to live. And it's in that wholeness, in that holistic approach to life that we come to know Him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Before I pray with your eyes closed, I'd like to ask you to think for a moment. Where are you really? Where are you really? Many of you here in this auditorium, you've known Christ for a long time. Some of you have been here since the rock started. And some of you know that you've really lost your fire. You're waiting for the rock to do the next new and exciting thing. So that finally you feel like, oh, all right, there's a new, there's a new fire under my backside. But, but that's not going to happen. It comes from within. The fire comes from within. The fire comes from God. The fire comes from a fully surrendered life. The fire comes when we yield to God. 
And we say to Him, I want you more than anything else in the world. And I will pay the price to have you, to sit at your feet, to know you. While many of my friends were playing games as a young man, I was reading my Bible. While many of my friends were chasing women, I was chasing souls. While many of my friends were going from one Christian concert to the other, I was seeking the Lord in prayer and singing to Him myself. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You want the passionate life? God wants it for you. He wants to give you life beyond what you could ever imagine. He wants to give you meaning and significance and purpose in everything that you do. Do you want it? I'd like you to tell the Lord as I pray tonight, if you really want it, Lord, I want it. I want that life. I want you. I want you to reveal yourself to me. And then tell Him, Lord, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to know you better, to follow you, and to serve you, and to enjoy you. Father, I just thank you tonight for each person that's here. They're here for a reason. They're not here by accident. I can look out in this auditorium, Lord, and there's people here that I know that in the last several years you have radically transformed their life. There are people here tonight in this auditorium who have done and are doing exactly what I'm talking about tonight and could get on this stage and could with great joy share the reality of of how it feels to live a passionate life. There are others, Lord, here tonight that They've been missing it. They want it. They've been missing it. Maybe they haven't realized what it would cost. Maybe they haven't realized how much you really love them. They've never really believed it with their heart. I don't know where they're at, but you know what, Lord? You know where they're at. And you're working in their life. And I ask you tonight to draw them to yourself. I ask you tonight, Lord, to work in their spirit, work in their heart. And I pray that every single person that's here in this auditorium tonight would begin experiencing tomorrow a passionate life. And that it would grow and grow and grow for the rest of their life. In Jesus' name, amen.